The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and the columnist for The New Daily. And I'm Stephen May, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder, advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And we are? In 2023, still the the Money Money Cafe. So I went to the cardiologist this morning, Stephen, and I've got high blood pressure and he wanted to know if I'm stressed. I said, well, I got my first Money Cafe (laughs) this morning. (laughs) So, Jeez. I was a bit stressed about that, I guess. Oh, I don't high know. blood pressure, because you're, you're 70. I'm 70. Now, 160 yeah. over 90. I have to do a 24-hour blood pressure monitor. Oh, my God. I've got to um, have an uh, ultrasound of my heart. Oh, Alan. So, you know, and I must say, just before we get into the depth of it, um, sorry to hear about your father. Uh, passing away recently, um, he sounds uh, uh, due to your fantastic obituary and Eureka report. He sounds like a wonderful guy. Yes, yes, he was. He was a fantastic dad. So he uh, passed thirty four days short of his ninety sixth. Um, had a very interesting life. Lived in seven countries. Came to Australia in nineteen sixty nine. Um, did two years on Crikey. When we started out, incredibly supportive and helpful, and then we had a big share market relationship as well. Um, and he lived just near around the corner, so I spent a lot of time with him, and I'm going to miss him dearly. But uh, he didn't quite match his father; he got to 107. But he got to 107. 107. That's four letters from the Queen, because you get one at 100, 105, 106, 107. So Dad was hanging out for King Charles the hundredth, <laughs> but didn't even get one in the end. But uh, great innings. Went out in the nervous 90s for a cricket lover, but. Uh, yeah. Still did well, so I'm going to miss him. Um, now, um, on to more Monday matters. Uh, you've been looking at the political donations, I think, so I don't have to. Is that right, Stephen? Yes. Every February the 1st, we get the dump of data in one of the world's worst disclosure systems for campaign finance. And you've got to hand it to Clive Palmer. I mean, spending $130, $123 million dollars he spent more than the ALP, which spent $116 million. That he didn't spend almost as much as the coalition, which was $131 million. And uh, there really should be spending caps in New South Wales in the upcoming election. No party can spend more than $13 million. That's the cap. Except for I think there should be no cap on Clive Palmer because never, it's never actually going to result in him getting a seat. Well, and like and Jerry he's Harvey, pro- and he's, he's a wonderful up, supporter of the media. And he's, pro- he's propping up the wonderful Australian media industry. Correct, correct. So, Jerry, Jerry and Clive. I mean, between the two of between them. Between the two of them, Jerry yes. and Clive, honestly, we, of there'd the be no Alliance. newspapers. That's right, that's right. We'd be Press Club Hall of Famers. Exactly. Well, so, yeah, no, cl- no cap for Clive Palmer. <laughs> I'm sad. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, uh, but anyway, that's the easy headline. But if you look at the data, um, I think it's it's interesting which companies are, are given the six figures. So you've got Woodside, nineteen 
And most of these are broadly 50-50. That's so, so they can get Scarborough up. Yeah, correct. Woodside did 19 transactions totaling 109,000, which is less than normal. And Tabcor. That, and it's worked for them. Yeah. <laughs> Tabcor did 22 transactions, 216 grand. Star Entertainment. So these gambling companies, 19 transactions, 212,000. West Farmers is still doing the, what's called the $110,000 premium subscription. So if you give 110000 each side, you're a premium subscriber and you get first-class tickets at all party events and special briefings with ministers and cabinet members and things like that. So ASX also signed up for 120 a year for that. So these political parties are subscription businesses. Well, they're, they're just they like, sell subscriptions. It's like Eureka. Yeah, but you don't charge 110000 for any of your subscriptions, do you? And maybe we should. Maybe we, you we should. Could, we could get special briefings. You get a special briefing with Alan. <laughs> You'll come round to their house. <laughs> do you reckon someone will pay 110000 bucks for that? I don't no, think so. I don't think so. so and then look, from a, there's always a share market angle with these donations figures. So the Cormac Foundation gave $6 million to the Liberals. Now, this goes back to the 1986 sale of 3XY, the radio station, for $15 million. And the party elders, like Charlie Good, Hugh Morgan, invested it in the share market. And they have been wonderful investors. They own currently $31 million worth of Commonwealth Bank shares, $10 million worth of NAB shares, $10 million worth of BHP shares, $12 million worth of West Farmers. So what's the total in the, in the well, pool the top, now? Well, the top eight is about $80 million. The whole portfolio is about 90 And they've given close to $50 million to the Liberal Party since 1988. And $6 million was a record haul. So three and a half to the Feds and two all and a half to the Victorians. All from selling 3XY. All from 3XY. Uh, so unbelievable. I didn't know that. The long term buy and hold. I mean, my dad was a crazy trader, right? He bought and sold QBE 40 times. And I used to say, Dad, maybe just buy and sell. And the Liberal Party has shown that. They bought, they held. But I think it's a bit questionable that the Commonwealth Bank has been their best investment when they were such... Weak regulators of the banking sector as the party was making out like bandits, um, seeing the shares go from $6 to 110 since the float. But, uh, yeah, and then I guess the other things is, uh, you know, foreign gambling companies like Sportsbet, 120000 to each party. But the one that really got up my nose was Regional Express, you know, the airline company. They got $29 million of JobKeeper. They got $54 million in support for regional routes during COVID. Alan Joyce even went public saying, why is the government giving the money to compete with us on Melbourne, Sydney? You know, this is ridiculous. And the, the former National Party Transport Minister, John Sharp, is the Deputy Chairman. And lo and behold, $150,000 donation to the National Party. If the money is going out from the government, it should not be getting looped back to should the party been, that yeah, does yeah. it. It should be against the law. It should have, it should have been much more than 150000 Well, I mean... That's, I mean, that's, that's nothing. That's crikey. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's very measly, really. Yes. And, and, uh, and finally, do you notice how the political parties don't have to produce balance sheets, let alone auditor balance sheets? Balance sheets. So every SMSF out there listening today, they've they got to pay the auditor and get the audit. The Labor Party, the Liberal Party do not have to get their accounts audited. They do not have to tell their members what the audited accounts say. And you get once a year, you get this bodgy money in, money out, and that's it. It's just pathetic disclosure. And we've got to do something about it, Alan. Yes, all right, I will. I'll, yeah. I'll fix it right up. Now, speaking of making out like bandits, what do we think of uh, Hindenburg versus Zidane? Uh, uh, Hindenburg putting out a 100-page report on Adani accusing them of making out like bandits for decades, uh, systematic fraud, etc. Adani's put out a 413-page response. 
Uh, but the share price keeps tumbling. 30% yesterday. I they mean, can the share sale? They, they are in big trouble. Adani's in big trouble. And this is this is the best battle since Tiny Roll on an on Bond when uh, Bondy raided Lonro. Jeez, now you're really dredging you know, I was up read, I was reading your 1989 uh, Shanti Clear column about this this morning, but... Uh, but Tiny Tiny Roland was basically another cowboy. What did I say? Well, I'll, I'll get to that. But <laughs> Ted, Ted Heath labelled this guy called Tony Roland the unacceptable face of capitalism. So he was a real cowboy. And Alan Bond went in and bought 20% of his stock and then tried to knock him off his boat mooring in the French Riviera, saying, I own more shares than you. Give me the top mooring. And Roland said, I'm going to destroy you, commissions this massive 93-page report, gets Robert Holmes a court to fly it into Australia on his private jet and distribute it everywhere. And the, uh, the headline was, Bond Group Companies Are Technically Insolvent, the commercial existence of which is through extraordinary bank support. And, and, uh, and, uh, and Bondi never recovered. That was basically the end of him. And this could be the same with Adani. Well, yeah, it could be. Could which be. Which is incredible, uh, given that he uh, has been, or was at least, uh, Asia's richest man, uh, India's biggest company. I mean, enormously uh, interwoven into the... Uh, Indian political establishment. But you know what I think is going to happen is because he's so tight with Modi, I actually think they'll bail him out. There's a long history of, you know, Putin's always got his favourite moguls who he supports. Basically, Robert Holmes Accord got bailed out by by a Burke in, you know, when Rupert was almost going under, Keating was ringing banks, you know, saying, save Rupert, save News Corp, he's too important for the banking system. So because Adani's so well connected, even if he's technically insolvent, I don't think it'll go broke because there'll be a political bailout and it's hard to go broke with a coal price so strong. But it's uh, still incredibly bodgy accounting and, and well done Hindenburg for even though the whole well, short seller uh, thing is a dodgy game. Well, Hindenburg's going to make uh, – they're going to make out like yeah. bandits, aren't they, really? Yeah. I mean, it's basically market manipulation, isn't it? It's a short sell and then, and then trash the stock. It's brutal capitalism, but there's good accountability in it because there's a lot of cowboy companies out there that need to be held to account. Not enough good investigative well, Yeah, And the thing is that these short sellers need to be right. Yes, you know, I mean, a report a report that goes out that's wrong will, will have an uh, immediate impact, but it won't have a lasting impact. Yeah, you will get sued. But, I mean, India, I don't want to sort of, you know, typecast, but I remember hearing on the radio a few years ago that 25% of Indian MPs had a criminal record. 25%. And, and apparently their level of corruption is that is that positions can be bought and sold in India based on the corruption value so if you're a customs officer at this airport you'd pay two million for the role and then you can make 300 grand a year in bribes and so there's a market for public positions so there's quite a, a bit market of price market price yeah oh, based on oh the corruptibility God. and the bribes you can extract so so there's Dear a lot idea. of institutional corruption in india um so gautam so, is just saying what's the problem this is yeah, just this what is everyone normal. does this is what we all do in india that's <laughs> right so in come in and uh, but there's the conspiracies going around about is this the Americans sending a message to the Indians for being too cosy with the Russians at the moment? And uh, but uh, I'm enjoying the contest. And um, now I just want to uh, move on briefly to Jim Chalmers' essay. Um, and I, as I pointed out, I pointed out in the New Daily this morning, uh, last July I wrote a column in which I said that the Reserve Bank is a renovator's delight. Uh, fixer-upper and uh, is, it needs to be renovated. And um, I note that Jim Chalmers in his essay says, I will renovate the, the RBA. And so Trademark. he's, pitched my, he's yes. pitched my language. Yes, well, I mean, you're very influential, I mean, he didn't. He, yeah, but he didn't attribute it. 
come on. Oh, that's well, you know, that's that's actually pretty ordinary. But um, but you, you know, should have said as Alan, as Alan Cole suggested. Described, yes, yes, yes. I well, will renovate the RBA. But I mean, News Corp sort of uh, hyperventilating about this, you know, command control. I think all oh, that's a bit over the top. I mean, he's just basically saying let's have a mixed economy and a bit of government intervention on renew- he, renewables or housing affordability is probably okay. Yeah, and he obviously felt. He, he needed to write an essay that looked really kind of yeah. intellectual yes. in order to, you know, set the scene for his future. Yes. Uh, and he had to think of something to say. Yes. You know, it's got to be long. You've got to write stuff in it. But there's and something about Queenslanders in the monthly, though, isn't there? I mean, Rudd, Swan and now Chalmers have all done long-form, politically influential, high-profile essays for the monthly. Yeah, well, no, they're all Labor... Yeah, that's well, right. So Labor there's something leaders. going on between Murray Schwartz and uh, Labor Queensland types. And Jim just felt he's got to do a, a Wayne and a Kevin and uh, trot out the... He did. That's the, what uh, he the felt. 6,000 words in the monthly. Exactly. So, um, but I like Jim. I think he's a very safe pair of hands. I love the fact that he's tight with Keating. So I'm not at all worried about all this socialist talk. No, no, that's right. Yeah. They're just looking... The News Corp papers are looking for something to yeah. hyperventilate about. Yeah, I mean, honestly. That's right. That's right. Um, now, what yeah. about interest rates? Uh, oh, well, next week. I reckon there's a possibility that it's 0.4 next week mm-hmm. um, to take it up to the round three and a half. Yep, three and a half. Yeah, I agree. It should be those sort of increments. Well, uh, you know, uh, look, it doesn't have to be. It could just be 0.25. And 3.35 that's, is a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. But I, I think what they would do if they did 0.4, they'd say they'd actually announce that we're on hold now. Yeah. It's 0.4 and... Rather than the drip feed of 4.25 yeah. to get a 1% rise as Deutsche Bank's predicting. Yeah. I agree. Let's do I, one I think there's a chance one that and then say that might be it. And 0.4 and we are now on hold. Yeah. Um, so that's my uh, sort of out there prediction. But, you know, let's face it, the most likely thing is a 0.25% yeah. hike. Yep, yeah, I um, think that's coming. All those 800,000 people on their fixed mortgages coming off, it's going to be a pretty stressful time for them. So I did an exercise. I'm doing a, um, a thing for the ABC News on Sunday night about interest rates and house prices. And I've, I, I worked on uh, a, a sort of a, what you might call a typical average household with one person working full-time, uh, one person working part-time three days a week, 1.6 times average weekly earnings uh, with the average mortgage of 560000 Yeah their repayments have gone from 24% of after-tax income to now 33% of after-tax income. Yeah. The next uh, rate hike will add 100 bucks next week if it's 0.25. And, you know, they're they're starting to go under now. Particularly with the house prices, as you said on the news last night, fastest ever dip in many, many years, off, what, close to 10%. Yeah, nine point six. So the serviceability uh, and the capital, capital value that that double hit is pretty potent in terms of uh, uh, yeah. hitting the the wealth effect on households. So yeah, and I'm I'm getting coming around to saying really, it's starting to be irrelevant whether there's a recession or not, whether unemployment goes up much. It's it's not about that anymore. It's about household balance sheets. It's about household balance sheets. Yep. Uh, and the working poor. Yep. I think. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Um, just briefly before we move on to questions, uh, what's going on with New South Wales pokies and clubs? The, with the guy getting the sack, what happened? Well, yeah, well, Josh Landis got the sack for sectarian comments about the Premier, but... Um, yeah, so if he, if he, he said he, it was used, the Premier's using his Catholic conservative gut, right? Yes. But if he hadn't used the word Catholic, he'd be fine. Yeah, correct. 
Yeah. If he just said yeah. it's his conservative gut, yeah. everyone would have gone. But the oh, great yeah. irony is Josh is actually Jewish, and he 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 apparently with mates, he's quite sensitive with anyone actually saying you know pointing out that someone is Jewish. So totally total brain fade that he would do that. But it is a bit of an explanation because, you know, why is he taking on this powerful lobby? Well, what he should have said, he's actually conservative Christian. And that cohort politically, the more right you go and the more church going you go, the more anti-gambling and anti-pokies you are. And so it is actually a partial explanation as to why Perrottet is going where no previous premier has gone. But you just can't say it. So are you are you using your Catholic conservative gut in opposing gambling, Stephen? No, no. Well, like my mother. Are uh, you a Catholic? I, no, I'm, a, I'm an Anglican. But uh, my father was, we had the service in the, in the local Anglican church. My mother uh, is a, a church-going Anglican and I picked up a lot of my anti-gambling sentiments off her um, right. and the churches have traditionally been close to the campaign so a lot of people are very excited about uh, cashless pokies in New South Wales and uh, the world's most uh, you know we've set 25 billion a year in losses in Australia with 7 billion on New South Wales pokies they've got 35% of the world's poker machines in one state in pubs and clubs and um, so yeah it's uh, getting rid of the CEO of clubs in New South Wales who's a very very tough campaigner take no prisoners type operator so I'm looking forward to going to the Aristocrat AGM on April 20 on February 24. I'm running for the board on a platform of get with the program on cashless pokies and stop associating with AHA and Clubs New South Wales. Well, you you are the absolute last person who's going to get on the Aristocrat. Correct. Leisure board. Correct. Stephen. But uh, what I wanted to show you was the they they've sent out the ballot paper a couple of weeks ago and and this is one of the most biased ballot papers you'll ever see. You'll see in big bold next to my name it's got against. And they haven't even sent out the notice of meeting to shareholders. So they've just sent out the ballot paper with a massive highlighted board recommendation in there. Do you think that's fair, Alan? If you well, walked into a ballot if you walked into a political election and it said right next to Monique Ryan's name, it said against yeah, well, the, the government is, says against. Well, yeah, I know, but if you if if they'd given you an opportunity to publish your uh, platform to the shareholders of Aristocrat Leisure, you'd be less likely to be voted <laughs> onto the board, I would say. Yes. I mean, the shareholders of Aristocrat Leisure are in there not as uh, anti-gambling, um, anti-pokies campaigners, yes. one would suggest. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm not expecting to make double figures. So, uh, And look, while on props, I've got two, two final props I wanted to show you, which are quite funny. The first one is I've been zeroed at Main Pharma. So, you know, when companies do share consolidations. So, Main Pharma have just done a 20 for one, where if you had 20 shares, you get one. And they've sent me the statement. And as you can see there, my 10 shares are now... Zero. So you've been rounded. I've been you've rounded, been rounded off, down. Rounded out. <laughs> rounded out. Off you go. So that's my old mate Bruce Matheson and Roger Corbett saying, how do we get Stephen Main off the register? Let's do a share consultation. Oh, you think it's all about you? Well, no, but it does happen a bit. Normally you round up and you no, give, you give someone be, one share. It might be Stephen. Yeah. And the other funny one I've got here is... You uh, do drive people crazy. Yeah, the the Arafura Rare Earths capital raising, where, as you can see there, I applied for more than $13,000 worth of shares and they gave me... None. Not one. So I've got 10 shares. They didn't even give me one 37-cent share, but they gave Gina Reinhart $61.5 million worth of shares, even though she was a smaller shareholder than me at the start of the exercise. So this is how the big end of town, the billionaires, can just barge their way to the front of the queue and the small shareholders can often get not even a crumb at the capital raising table. Jeez, that's terrible. It might be a lucky escape there, Stephen. Yes, yes. Well, the shares have popped because of the Gina effect, but... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, so I'm uh, not doing well on the uh, 
capital raising fund at the moment. But we should do some questions, Alan. We've got quite a few to get through. Uh, first question uh, is from someone named Bain Capital Skeptic, which is an interesting And I'm going to assume this, uh, this questioner is female because we don't have many female questions today. So Bain Capital Skeptic is a female. Just so to get our gender balance right. Ms. Skeptic? Ms. Skeptic says... Will the level of debt that the owners of Virgin Australia have uh, have taken on since its purchase be fully disclosed prior to the float? Yes, it will. The prospectus will have all that sort of information. Now, there has been a couple of examples of questionable private equity prospectuses in the past. The worst was Maya, where they had all these long-dated leases with balloon payments at the end. So they said the leases escalated and the prospectus didn't spell out just the true size of the liability in 20 years time or whatever it was but i'm predicting they'll go out with a very conservative balance sheet because every Qantas competitor has basically failed over the years Com compass southern cross ansett virgin they all go broke eventually so you would want to be getting the reborn virgin out and now we've got bonza 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 That'll what be a short-lived ripper, I'd say. So, um, <laughs> but uh, but the Qantas balance sheet is interesting. So Qantas has got 3.3 billion of cash, 5.8 billion of revenue in advance in their latest balance sheet, and they got 5.8 billion in debt and lease liabilities 1.2 billion. So it's a you know they've got a bit of debt, but the net debt's probably about uh, 2.5, and the market cap's currently 11.5. So that's a pretty conservative balance sheet even though they claim to have neg negative net assets of $190 million after losing $4 billion in three years. So it's a fantastically inaccurate balance sheet, Qantas. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if Virgin gets floated with no debt, just to say this thing is bulletproof, it's equipped to take on Qantas, it's not going broke, um, and it's a safe buy. Are you going to line up for your 10 shares? Well, I'll, 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 look, I might go in for a bit more than that, but uh, I'll definitely be going to the first AGM. Always like to get in, you know, give a christening to a newly floated stock. Welcome to the markets. You know, I'm sure you better, more enjoyed the privacy of private equity land for a couple of years there, but we're back. <laughs> now, Gavin says, thanks for sharing your wisdom and experience with the masses via your podcast. As a borderline Gen XY, I've watched with dismay at the cost of real estate has reached unobtainable levels. My question is twofold. In your opinion, if a future government was to abolish the 50% CGT discount and negative gearing, would this slow the investment in housing, cool prices and be the panacea to our housing crisis? What do you reckon? Uh, no, in fact, it would probably do the, do the opposite uh, because it would, uh, would slow investment in housing, um, but that would arguably potentially lead to less housing. Yes. Um, and the thing is that I think the evidence suggests that um, uh, I, I know you probably don't want to hear this, but the evidence does suggest that interest uh, that um, house prices have gone up almost entirely because of interest rates. Yeah, and it isn't really due to investors piling in. No, to true. get negative gearing. I mean, there may be a bit of that at the margin, um, but really, I don't. Uh, you know, I think in the end. I mean, we have, an, we have a housing crisis in this country. We don't have enough housing. We certainly don't have enough um, investment housing for people to rent. The, the, I mean, the rental yeah. vacancy rate is, is minuscule. And, and we don't have enough affordable housing. So we actually need governments to crank up the spending on affordable housing, which, which the Labor side is certainly doing. Yeah, but nowhere near enough. Not, not enough, but I, I, you know, that mixed model capitalism with governments uh, spending tens of billions buying, building affordable housing, I actually think that's, there's absolute merit in that. But 
those removing those t tax incentives would make franked dividends even more tax preferred, preferred, and would send prices down and lead to a large number of investors selling uh, because they're no longer getting that. Yeah, so tax it, okay, so it would make housing more affordable. It would make That's housing true. more affordable, but there'd be a problem with supply. So the government, in my view, would need to intervene with supply. Yeah. Um, and if they did that, then maybe a massive wealth effect for people who are suddenly not as rich as they thought. But. Uh, Andrew says, can you please make a list of other recommended podcasts that are financially sound? I know that they will not be up to the same entertainment value as the Money Cafe. Uh, I'm sure that's true. Well, I, I really like, there's a podcast called Pivot, uh, put out by New York Magazine with Cara Swisher and Professor Scott Galloway, which covers all things tech in the US. So if you want to know anything about what's going on with Google or Facebook or TikTok or, or all that sort of stuff, it's, it's really, really good. Apple. Um, some of the Magellan podcasts aren't bad either. They've, I've listened to a couple yesterday. They've interviewed with the global CFO of Diageo and the CEO of Visa. Hamish Douglas does used to do a few of those. I also love, they're not really finance, but the rest is politics and the rest is history out of the UK, my two other favourites. But listen, not, not that many. That there's, one that's, um, uh, there's one that's put out by Michael, uh, economist Michael Hudson in New York yeah. and somebody else whose name... I can neither pronounce or nor remember um, another economist. So they uh, they have a good, interesting discussion. Yeah. Um, but I'm not much of a listener to podcasts, no. really, to be honest. No. And um, Tom says, love the podcast. I'm a regular listener. I'm 31, not an active trader, generally preferring ETFs and a few smaller companies. Though over the last three years, it seems to have paid off just cracking the 200,000 mark a few months ago, which I'm stoked at. Certainly didn't think I'd be accumulating this much at the beginning. So I'm putting money in ticked but now i have a question about deductions and managing my portfolio is it possible to deduct any services subscriptions things like the afr or perhaps the eureka report intelligent investor are there any low-hanging fruit in the deduction camp well the answer to that tom is that you have to show the tax man that there's material that there's real income there so if you can show there's real income so you know i'm generating 20 30 40 thousand a year of income then you can make legitimate deductions which are required for generating that income. So whether it's a software for share selection, a Lincoln or a VectorVest or whatever, a membership of the Shareholders Association, if your shareholding's big enough, you can claim your travel for travelling to an AGM. So quite a few big bank shareholders, you know, fly into Melbourne, enjoy the sights and sounds, attend the, attend the NAB AGM and go home and say, that's just me checking up on my $80,000 NAB shareholding, but the, the expense claim has to be commensurate to the asset value and the income. You can't start you know, having negative giving losses where your expenses are even more than your overall income. So it just needs to be in proportion, I think. Uh, Luke says, here's a technical question for you. I've got some LIS shares, which I think what stands for uh, uh, lithium sulphate shares, is essentially given to me pre-IPO for being a PIPPK shareholder. Mm -hmm. Uh, they then were transferred over to being LIS shares once the IPO happened. For CGT purposes, I have no idea what they should be labelled for the cost of their purchases. Any ideas? Well, the ATO will normally come up with an answer on that with any sort of public company demerger. As an example, when Woolworths demerged Endeavour Group, the message went out there that your cost price for Endeavour is 15% of whatever you paid for Woolworths. So if you got in Woolworths early at three bucks, then your cost price for Endeavour shares was 45 cents and selling them at seven bucks is a massively expensive capital gain. 
So you just need to find out from – normally it is the ATO with big transactions that put out a statement saying this is the official cost price or the company themselves should be able to give you that advice. Now, Luke says, uh, Alan, you bang on about fees being fair amongst many different investment mechanisms. What do you think about the fee structure of your company, InvestSmart, owners of Eureka Report? As far as fees are concerned, are they as good as Vanguard, Vanguard a quintessential low-cost ETF? There you go, Alan. Walk that tightrope. <laughs> well, we're talking two different things in a way. Um, InvestSmart, uh, InvestSmart's um, uh, funds are a portfolio of ETFs, not just one ETF each. So they have about half a dozen ETFs in each of the each of the portfolios. The fee is 0.55 percent, which is higher than Vanguard's um, fees. I haven't looked lately at Vanguard's, but I think they're around 0.2. So it's you know the the investment fee is definitely higher, but you get more for your money in the sense that uh, they manage these portfolios and you know keep an eye on them for you, and and also they do a lot of the, the paperwork. Uh, but the other more important thing is the fee is capped so that um, uh, uh, once the fee gets – once you've got about $80,000 uh, invested with them, you can't pay any more um, than uh, – uh, I can't remember, the 300 and, I think it's $342 a year. It's capped. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So if you've got only a small amount of money uh, – uh, you're going to pay 0.55%. You might be better off in um, Vanguard. Or in Vanguard. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're a, not worried about the fact that you've only got one ETF as opposed to a, a portfolio of them. Um, but certainly if you've got a lot of money, um, the, the investment porf, uh, portfolios are terrific because, you know, you, you end up paying a minuscule. I mean, if you had a million bucks in investment, your uh, fee is absolute as a percentage is kind of... Uh, uh, microscopic. Very well said, Alan. You'll get your contract renewed for saying all that excellent stuff. Now, Robbie's got a question about his kids making money and can he invest on their behalf and then transfer the shares to them later and not get CGT? And I think the answer, Robbie, to that is that you need to... I set up Comsec accounts for my kids when they were all under 10, so you'd probably need to do that as well. Be the guardian, actually put the money in their name to avoid the tax. If you just try and say... I did this six years ago, Mr. Taxman, and now I'm transferring it over. They're just going to look at who's who's. Yeah, and you'll be paying capital gains tax. Correct, you will. Yeah. Susan says, when a company officer or director sells a large parcel of shares in a company, such as the recent eight million share sales by John in John's Ling by the CEO and the COO, what happens to these shares? Uh, are there big institutions that snap them up, and what's the impact on the share price? So, the answer to that is it's generally not a good thing when insiders sell overall as a general concept and a good example of that is when Russell Kogan and his offsider David Schaefer sold 7.3 million shares in Kogan at $21.60 a pop in August 2020 and today those shares are are only worth $4.54 so you've lost 79% buying off the insiders. Um, so in the case of John's Ling, the stock's gone from $0.80 cents to $9 in four years. And then they had a few bumps and the insiders have sold at six twenty-five, and it's now down to five seventy-eight. So there has been a bit of a loss of confidence seeing insiders dumping $50 million worth of shares. But they've just been bought by institutions. There's no special treatment of those shares. At one level, it can sometimes free up index investing if the free float increases that can be a good thing remove the overhang 
but they still have big investments it's in the pro- company. It's probably, um, it's probably worth saying what, what business John Sling is in, and, and the answer is uh, they're in a, the uh, disaster building business. They work for insurance companies rebuilding houses and uh, buildings that have been blown over by cyclones or burnt by bushfires and so on. And um, so they're a bit like panel beaters yeah. and who you work had a for very, insurance companies. And you had a very interesting interview with their CEO, which people should listen to. I didn't realise they were trying to become the biggest uh, um, apartment uh, sort of uh, committee sort of managers where you manage the, um, the, the committee of the apartment owners. Um, yeah, body corporate managers. Body corporate managers. Yeah, yeah. And they can send all the work to themselves. Sounds yeah. a bit of a conflict of interest, I thought. We're running the body corporate. Have we got a company to fix your plumbing, sir? But um, I'm sure it'll be in in the wording of their body corporate deal somewhere that they are the builders. Yes, yes. But um, I love John's Ling. They're my equal favourite company with Hanson Technology. You know why? They're the only two public companies based in Manningham. John's Ling's in Doncaster, about 200 metres down the road from (laughs) my good friends at Hanson Technology. So not much happens (laughs) in Manningham, but a couple of corporates are out there. So. All right. Now, we probably should uh, skip along. Um, to Laurent. Laurent, yes. Uh, what effect, if any, has Stephen had being a shareholder advocate, some would say serial pest, and what meaningful changes has, has he been able to influence for shareholders? Can one man really stop the capitalist machine? I'd love to hear the Cowboys' thoughts on this. <laughs> So let's have a little. Let's have a thirty-second reflection on your life, Stephen. All right. Well, look, Lauren. Uh, thank you for that. Look, look. It's been twenty-five years of doing this. I've run for fifty-five boards. I've asked questions at six hundred and seventy meetings. Overall, I've worked with the proxy advisors, journalists, shareholder association, and the, the general goal is to hound out dud directors, negotiate better deals for retail shareholders in capital raisings, try and curb executive pay, uh, and get some disclosure improvements. Sometimes we, you can just run for a board and force something to happen. So for a while there, I was running for every board that did a placement without a share purchase plan. You know, Santos, Channel 10, there were a few of them. Uh, Westfield. And I remember ringing up Westfield and saying, if you don't do a share purchase plan, I'm running for your board. And three days later, they announced a share purchase plan to avoid the board contest. And so, look, you know, uh, I don't know if I've had much of an influence, but I mean, I reckon one time I ran for the BHP board on a platform that they stopped bidding for Rio Tinto because they were trying to overpay for Rio Tinto. And 18% of the London shareholders had voted for me. So they were sending a message to BHP, don't overpay for Rio. And then they cancelled the deal on the morning of the Australian AGM. They never said, we see the protests through the fact that all of you instos are supporting this nutter as a proxy for sending a message about opposing the Rio deal. But they're the sorts of little things where you can just uh, nudge away and hopefully... Um, I, should, I should say, everybody, that this activity over 25 years has not made Stephen rich. No. Um, to the contrary. It, to so, the contrary. It's, um, it's been a labour of love. It's thousand of tra- travel costs, I think, before uh, all the onlines came along. But um, now also, enough of me. Now, look, Joe wants to know the history of the Chanticleer column. And we should actually point out that our Chanticleer co-host is no longer, James Thompson, is no longer junior chook. He's now senior chook with the retirement of Tony Boyd. Yes, he is. And uh, James will be with us next week as the number one rooster. <laughs> the Chanticleer, the name Chanticleer came, comes from um, uh, the rooster in the Canterbury Tales. And it was dreamed up by Bob Gottliebson, who was the first Chanticleer in 1974. Wow. Um, and I became the second China Clear. I joined Bob in 1979 and he hired me as his understudy 
and I worked with Bob on the Shonda Clear column for one year and then he left to start BRW and I did it on my own uh, after which so I did it on my own for four years and then I became editor of the Financial Review I went back to Shonda Clear and did it for another four years between so eight years of chooking eight years of chooking gosh um, twice in two in two stints um and so, uh, yeah, there you are. Am I the Chanticleer graphist of the ABC, says Joe? Well, uh, arguably, I guess. Um, I used to run a few graphs in the Chanticleer column yes. in those days. Yes. The, the, I don't think James and Tony Boyd have lately. No. But I think you were in the top couple of chooks over the years. And I started in journalism. I always found your columns compelling. So, and it's still... Top is- couple. Top couple, yeah. I, thought, I did like Ivor Rees as well. He was uh, yeah, he right. was pretty feisty, but okay, I'll get, I'll we won't do a league about it today. But we probably better wrap things up, I think. Yeah, we probably better. So, uh, yeah, that's right. Um, excellent. Okay, very good. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to our first episode of Money Cafe for 2023. We've enjoyed it. It's great to be back in Leclerc. Um, and I'll be back next week with James Thompson. So send in your questions for him and me. And we'll answer them together. Email themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. So until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, etc. And I'm Stephen May, contributor at Eureka Report, founder at Crikey, etc. And I should say that today's edition has been produced by the wonderful Greg Demopoulos, whose dulcet tones you will hear introducing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>